Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Beta-lactam antibiotics have become the cornerstone of pharmacotherapy for infectious diseases. Their pharmacokinetic alterations in critical illness have been well described, and the implications of these changes can adversely impact efficacy and potentially lead to toxicity. Therapeutic drug monitoring of beta-lactams has emerged as a potential tool to individualize regimens for ICU patients. Dr. Andy Webb, PharmD, summarizes the literature describing the role of beta-lactam monitoring in the ICU and outlines practical considerations for routine utilization. So since their discovery in the 1940s, beta-lactams have quickly become the standard of care for a wide number of infections. Whether you're treating otitis media outpatient or hospital-acquired pneumonia in the ICU, a beta-lactam will frequently be the antibiotic that a prescriber reaches to first. However, most of us have experiences where patients who had all signs of having a successful course in a beta-lactam have a negative outcome, either due to a treatment failure or a potential toxicity. And therapeutic drug monitoring of beta-lactams has emerged as a potential tool to quantify the risk of those negative outcomes. So hopefully at the end of today's presentation, you'll be able to describe some of the pharmacokinetic alterations of beta-lactams we observe in critically ill patients and recognize and identify the potential role that therapeutic drug monitoring plays in being able to quantify the risk of poor effectiveness or potential toxicity. So to start the presentation, I'd like to start with a case. And this case will carry us through the entirety of the presentation. So I urge you to go to polyv.com slash mayorx or type mayorx to 22333. And let's say we have an 82-year-old woman with a past medical history of heart failure, COPD, recurrent UTIs, breast cancer, who's admitted to the MICU for fevers and hypotension. If this was, say, just any old patient, what sort of factors would you want to look at to assess for pharmacokinetic changes in this patient? This is open response, so I urge you to say whatever your kind of standard workflow is. Yeah, so we have several responses kind of rolling in here, and I think even just these few highlight the fact that there are a lot of variables at play. There's lots of things that interact with pharmacokinetics, including drug factors, renal function, distribution changes, age, all of these sorts of things. And it's very difficult to exactly quantify what each individual patient's pharmacokinetics look like. See, lots more are starting to roll in right now. So let's suppose our patient has symptoms that are consistent with her previous UTIs, and she's got a nasty cultural history, including Enterobacter and Pseudomonas. So she started on cefepime one gram every 12 hours for a presumed AKI based on some of those factors that we just discussed in the last slide. So when we think about cefepime, as well as any other beta-lactam, and we want to think about the relationship between pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, it's good to reflect upon the, the effect-response relationship that beta-lactams have in terms of the integral relationship between pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. So pharma beta-lactam antibiotics work by maximizing the effectiveness based on time over the MIC. So if you look at this curve, this is, say, if you give a dose of beta-lactam, you have a peak, and then the clearance allows that drug to be excreted. Maximizing the time that that curve is over the MIC has been observed to maximize the chance of a good effect. And beta-lactams are generally hydrophilic, 
and are mostly renally eliminated. So changes in pharmacokinetics, especially in the critically ill, can substantially alter the amount of time spent over the MIC. And we really care about the time spent over the MIC because in experimental models, time over MIC has consistently been shown to be predictive of antimicrobial effectiveness. So this is a study in mice where ticarcillin, a penicillin analog of piperacillin, was given to mice infected with pseudomonas. And when they charted the mean reduction in the colon of colony forming units on the y-axis against the percent time over the minimum inhibitory concentration, or MIC, you can see a very nice linear relationship demonstrating that a longer time spent over the MIC means there's more bacterial killing. And generally, we think of this kind of 40% time over MIC as somewhat of a minimum marker. This seems to kind of be where that inflection point is, where at least bacterial, bacteria are no longer allowed to grow. Now, this is particularly true in gram-positive infections because there seems to be a bit of a post-antibiotic effect, but often we'll use this as kind of like a minimum bar of effectiveness of beta-lactams. So if we want to pass that minimum bar, it's important to understand some of the changes, especially in our patients in the ICU who are very often being given beta-lactams. And distribution is one of the key ones that changes in the ICU. Things like reduced albumin, increased alpha-1 acid glycoprotein due to a stress response, volume resuscitation for patients in shock, as well as capillary leak syndrome due to systemic inflammation, can all lead to substantially increased volumes of distribution of our beta-lactams who are generally hydrophilic. And this is certainly not an exhaustive list. Other factors including obesity, being on ECMO, presence of cystic fibrosis, as well as many others, can substantially alter the volume of distribution of our beta-lactams, which will change how long they are over the MIC. Now, this was nicely demonstrated in a study of 12 patients in the ICU being given cefperone, which is a fourth-generation cephalosporin used in Australia that can be analogous to cefepime, which we use here. And what the investigators here did is did serial pharmacokinetic monitoring of patients on cefperone over the, its 12-hour dosing interval. And what they observed was a substantial variation from what it was generally considered to be the pharmacokinetics in healthy adults. So while the half-life may not have changed all that much, the volume of distribution inc increased quite a bit. And what I have charted here on this graph is the median plasma levels over that dosing interval. And while they did see a median time over the MIC of 67%, which means maybe it passes that minimum bar, what's probably more important is the fact that this is a median. And they observed that there were some patients who had plasma levels above the MIC the entire dosing interval, and several patients who dipped below that MIC quite quickly, just demonstrating there's a lot of variability in the pharmacokinetics of these agents. The next piece we want to think about is protein binding. So while most beta-lactams are not heavily protein-bound, with ceftriaxone and cefazolin, it's just good to remember that only unbound drug is active. And given changes in both albumin and alpha-1 acid glycoprotein, unbound drug can be somewhat unpredictable. This is particularly true for ceftriaxone, that heavily protein-bound antibiotic, where these investigators looked at 19 patients in the ICU with normal renal function, who, and they looked at the predicted unbound concentration compared to the measured unbound concentration. And they observed that there was actually significantly higher unbound ceftriaxone than what they were expecting. Now, it is important to note that agents like piperacillin, which is less protein-bound, around 20 to 30 percent, is a much more linear relationship. However, this just highlights that there is a degree of variability and unpredictability when we're thinking about how much unbound drug is available for activity. Now, the next pharmacokinetic alteration and parameter that's good to think about is clearance or excretion. Now, most beta-lactams, again, with the exception of ceftriaxone, are renally eliminated. Most of us are familiar with the fact that we need to renally dose most beta-lactams. 
But it's also good to consider that changes in clearance can be both negative in terms of, say, acute kidney injury, where you have a decreased clearance, or clearance can be substantially increased in cases like augmented renal clearance. And both of these can be dynamic, changing minute by minute, and difficult to quantify. Additionally, especially acute kidney injury doesn't just change uh, clearance. Things like increased plasma volume can increase volumes of distribution, and uremic competition at albumin binding sites can increase the fraction of unbound drug. So while we think of AKI as being a prim primarily affecting clearance, it can in fact influence almost all of the parameters of the pharmacokinetics of beta-lactams. Similarly, with augmented renal clearance, because patients with physiologic reserve who have mounting increased renal clearance, this faster clearance can potentially lead to poor effectiveness because they're not able to maintain levels above the MIC. So this chart is from a study that looked at the trough to MIC ratio, essentially meaning that if their trough was above the MIC, the entirety of their dosing interval was above the MIC. But if it's below, that means at some point they were below the MIC. And as renal clearance increases, as you can see on the x-axis, patients were less likely to have that trough above the MIC, which is a risk factor for poor effectiveness of the beta-lactams they're receiving. So another thing for us to consider when we're thinking about kind of our labeled package insert type doses that don't necessarily account for these hyperdynamic renal clearances. So let's just reflect upon some of these changes. Suppose our patient from earlier in the presentation on day two experiences a worsening AKI and her creatinine doubles overnight. Which PK changes might you expect to occur in response to this when considering her cefepime therapy? Would you expect to just see decreased elimination, increased volumes of distribution, increased overall exposure, potentially all of the above? And so those of you who have responded have pointed out they, there's all of these could potentially happen in this patient. There's a lot of variables that go into assessing the pharmacokinetics of critically ill patients, and it's just unexpected what can truly happen. So one of the things that we might be able to do to address this is trying to monitor the actual levels of the beta-lactams in these patients. And this is particularly salient because many patients simply don't achieve pharmacokinetic goals of uh, adequate time over the MIC with commercial dosing. So this chart here is from a study that looked at uh, critically ill patients receiving a variety of beta-lactam agents and tried to see, especially in patients with normal renal function, but also with those in decreased renal function, do they achieve a trough goal of time over, over the MIC after the first dose? And in those 80 patients, with the exception of meropenem, most patients simply fail to meet that trough goal. And if patients are below the MIC goal, there's a chance of not only not having the optimum effectiveness, but also promoting resistance as well if they're not adequately suppressing bacterial growth. So the question is, should we use therapeutic drug monitoring for all of our patients receiving beta-lactams? So there's kind of two ways we can go about this, and there's two ways that generally it has been investigated. One is sort of prospective routine monitoring, kind of everybody gets it that we already do with drugs like vancomycin or aminoglycoside which has generally been what's used when studies try to see whether or not therapeutic drug monitoring is effective at achieving those pharmacokinetic targets. Or the other way is intermittent monitoring, when you just kind of pick and choose which patients you feel uh, are appropriate for being monitored. And this, as we'll get to later on in the presentation, is what's studied when we're assessing toxicity. But there are some also some kind of operational considerations that we have. Unfortunately, here at Mayo Clinic, all beta-lactam therapeutic drug monitoring levels are send-outs. So when we're thinking about the timing of monitoring, there's going to be quite a bit of a delay. Most of the reference laboratories, like the ARUP lab in Salt Lake City, Utah, have a turnaround of about 6 to 18 to 24 hours, but you need to get the lab there first. So you would expect it to be about two days, 
before you actually get that result, which may not be ideal when you're trying to assess whether or not somebody had their effect two days ago. Additionally, you want to consider binding. I've already mentioned that some antibiotics, particularly ceftriaxone, have unpredictable binding properties, and most of the labs available only give you total drug. So there's also going to be some degree of interpretation there as you're going to be extrapolating you know, what percent of this drug is normally protein bound. And lastly, the target that you set is also going to be dynamic based on the patient and the drug. So most of the time, if you're going to be using therapeutic drug monitoring after the first or second day of therapy, you probably don't have cultures back yet. So often you have to assume an MIC, which may be more aggressive than what's actually growing in that patient. For instance, here are some of the standard breakpoints for some common antibiotics, using 4 milligrams per liter for cefepime or 16 milligrams per liter for piperacillin. And this is generally what you're going to want to use if you don't know what's growing yet. And you, this may be a changing target as you get cultures coming back. However, I do kind of want to stop there and just think about that target. As I mentioned previously, that 40% time over the MIC is kind of a minimum benchmark for effectiveness. But especially in our critically ill patients who have those changes in pharmacokinetics, 40% may actually not be sufficient to assure that minimum benchmark of effectiveness. Due to those pharmacokinetic changes, difficult to reach sites of infection, and severity of infection, targeting either 100% of the time over the MIC, or even 100% of the time over four times the MIC, may be a more effective target. This is a study in 36 patients with uh, culture-proven gram-negative rod infections. And they, while there was a relatively small number of patients who didn't achieve 100% of the time over the MIC, you can see in the patients who did have their entire dosing interval of a level above the MIC were much more likely to have a clinical successful cure. And just to kind of highlight again the importance of maybe overshooting that MIC target, let's talk about sites of infection. Oftentimes we think about compartments like the central nervous system, the lung, prostate infections, and bone infections as being difficult to reach. And in this study of 18 patients with pneumonia being given piperacillin-tazobactam, you can see that while plasma levels were quite a bit over the MIC, when they actually measured the levels of piperacillin in the epithelial lining fluid around the lungs, the levels were barely at the MIC really underscoring the importance that especially in our sickest patients, really overshooting that target is probably the best way to assure effectiveness. And I mentioned that four times the MIC as really pushing it even further. Because while we think of beta-lactams as being time-dependent uh, antibiotics, they do have some degree of a dose-response effect as well. And in, in, uh, in experimental models, they demonstrated that the degree of bacterial killing actually increases when you push a little bit further past just one times the MIC and even up to four times the MIC. But it doesn't seem to get much better past four to five times the MIC. And that was demonstrated here in a retrospective cohort of ICU patients with positive culture who had therapeutic drug monitoring, where they tried to see what MIC cutoff was uh, associated with the most likely chance of successful positive outcome. So first you can see they split patients into achieving less than 1.3 times the MIC, so just a little bit up above just the MIC. There's about a 50-50 shot of whether or not they're actually gonna be cured. If they had 100% of their time above that MIC, they had improved odds. And especially with the agents of meropenem, estrenam, and ceftriaxone, if they pushed that target even to almost five times the MIC, they had almost a 97% ch chance of clinical cure. Really showing that four times to five times the MIC might be the sweet spot for many of our patients in the ICU with the most severe infections. And the unfortunate part is that with commercial dosing, most patients just simply don't reach this target. So this was an international cohort of ICUs across the world 
um, showing that, especially with agents like piperacillin and meropenem, most patients at steady state don't reach this target, which may explain some of the variability in the patients who don't have good clinical outcomes in the ICU. And they also highlighted that those patients at that minimum level, that minimum threshold bar, they, they defined as 50% time over the MIC, almost 50% less likely to have a successful outcome, 50% more likely to have like a clinical failure. So many centers have started to use prospective therapeutic drug monitoring for their beta-lactams for all patients in the ICU receiving beta-lactams. So one particular ICU in Queensland, Australia, has a simple nomogram that they use that can be really closely correlated to, say, our nomogram for vancomycin or aminoglycosides, where they monitor all patients who are receiving beta-lactams in their ICU to try to target that time over four times the MIC. And when the, they measure a level and patients are below that, they'll increase the frequency to try to maximize the amount of time spent over that, or they'll change to a continuous infusion, which I'll briefly mention later on in the presentation. And on the flip side, they also don't want to overshoot this. As we'll get to later on in the presentation, levels that are very high are associated with toxicities. So they'll also decrease the dose and dosing interval should they have a level that's way higher than their projected MIC. And these investigators just tried to see whether or not, or what was happening when they were using this nomogram. So they looked at a wide number of infections across their ICUs, and they saw that doses were changing. These patients were being started on your traditional commercial doses listed on the package insert, your two grams Q8, and especially for infections like hospital-acquired pneumonia, patients just simply weren't reaching, reaching their targets. So therapeutic drug monitoring allowed them to identify that they needed to increase the dose, as represented in the green bar there, in the majority of their patients. And this was true for many of their infections, including dose decreases, how there were some patients who were being overexposed to beta-lactams, potentially being subject to toxicities. They did observe that about 87% of these patients had a good clinical outcome, which is higher than many of the studies that we'll look at later on in the presentation. But unfortunately, they didn't compare this to, say, standard dosing that did not use therapeutic drug monitoring. So we can't make any conclusive uh, statements about the use of therapeutic drug monitoring in improving effectiveness definitively. So can we say that therapeutic drug monitoring is better than traditional dosing? So there isn't a lot of evidence out there that really answers that question. But this, this is one study of interest which randomly uh, randomized patients into either having therapeutic drug monitoring guided dosing or just traditional dosing. And they, compare, they compared pharmacokinetic um, attainment of their goals. And at day one, after just a single dose of a commercialized dose, there really wasn't any difference between traditional dosing and TDM-guided dosing. But by day three, when patients were at steady state, there was a substantial increase in the percent of patients receiving therapeutic drug monitoring guided dosing who reached their target of four times the MIC when they pulled the trough. Now, the sample sizes were small. There was only about 40 patients in this uh, study, so they couldn't make any conclusive statements about effectiveness. But patients who were in the traditional dosing arm, there are five patients who had persistently positive cultures at day seven versus just one in the TDM guided. So there's a numeric difference, but of course, we can't make any conclusive statements about that. And these similar small-scale studies has been concordant results found in pediatrics as well as febrile neutropenia just underscoring that when you use therapeutic drug monitoring, dose adjustments are made to our standard commercial doses, and patients generally seem to reach that target more often. However, the ideal trial would be, again, prospectively comparing TDM-guided dosing to traditional dosing, powered to a clinical outcome, and of course, like many of our pressing questions in critical care, just doesn't exist. So what we do know is that, at least in experimental models, hitting PK targets appears to maximize the chance of cure. 
So if we don't have data to support prospectively using therapeutic drug monitoring, the next thing that we can do is just make sure that we pick the best dosing strategy up front. And there are several strategies of doing this, two of whom I'll talk about is using population pharmacokinetics and Bayesian calculators, where we try to use simulations of what large populations of patients' pharmacokinetics generally look like in the ICU, or just using continuous or extended infusions, which we know can maximize our time over the MIC. We at least have a little bit of an idea of how this might be able to let us get to our targets. So the first one I'll talk about is Bayesian prediction or Monte Carlo predictions, where we use kind of our statistical modeling strategies to try to calculate the ideal dose based on our patient's specific characteristics. So this is extending beyond just renal dose adjustments. So generally we consider just the creatinine or just the renal function of our patients and pick a labeled dose based on that. But for instance, the, the iPhone and Android app IDODS, which you can download for free and try it out for yourself, led to 22% of patients receiving doses different from the package insert recommendation and reaching their PK targets more likely. So for instance, if we were to import the data of our patient for the case that we've been using there in this presentation, she was 82 years old. We'll say she has a serum creatinine of 2.2. We were giving her cefepime one gram Q12. And let's say we drew a trough after a day and her level was two milligrams per liter. The app would actually use an ICU-based Bayesian analysis to try to maximize the, uh, choose a dose that would maximize her chance of reaching a, a trough target. And it suggests using one gram every eight hours which may not be the standard thing that you would want to reach for based on the standard package insert dosing or what's recommended in an antimicrobial dosing guide. So again, these, these studies that use Monte Carlo or Bayesian prediction don't necessarily have outcomes data, but it's just a great way to be a little bit more individualized in how we dose our beta-lactams. The next method would be using continuous or extended infusions. Now to just kind of graphically look at why this makes sense, if you think about intermittent boluses, you have these high peaks and low lows, and you'll have more time below the MIC than might be optimal. With extended infusion, you try to push that curve out a little bit. In continuous infusion, you just try to keep that level above the MIC at all times. And this kind of strategy is probably where we have the most actual clinical data to try to see whether or not there's good outcomes benefits with this. And unfortunately, it hasn't been fantastic, but there's at least some. So the first is the BLING2 trial, which randomized patients to either continuous infusion or intermittent boluses, receiving piperacillin, meropenem, or ticarcillin clavulanate, with the primary outcome of ICU-free days. While they didn't see a difference in ICU-free days, 90-day mortality, or 14-day cure, there were some limitations, including a low number of actual positive cultures and low, low cure rate overall, only about 50%. They didn't measure levels, so there wasn't a way to actually ensure that the patients receiving continuous infusions were reaching those targets. And a good quarter of the patients were receiving renal replacement therapy, which may confound the actual pharmacokinetic differences between these two arms. So in response, the BLISS trial was a very similarly uh, structured trial, randomizing patients to continuous infusion and intermittent bolus, but excluding patients with renal replacement therapy and using slightly higher doses of all agents. They actually did find a difference between 14-day cure as well as a difference between time over the MIC. And as you can see, when they actually did use therapeutic drug monitoring, the continuous infusion arm had significantly higher levels, and they didn't actually observe any uh, significant toxicities in either arm as well. So while this isn't necessarily distinct support in therapeutic drug monitoring, it at least highlights that using appropriate dosing, especially in those patients who were concerned, might not reach that target because of their pharmacokinetic alterations or because they have infections with high MICs, is one way to really maximize our chance of good effectiveness. 
But there are several studies ongoing which will help try to clarify some of these remaining questions in terms of whether or not therapeutic drug monitoring is distinctly advantageous over traditional dosing, including the Dolphin, Target, and Bling-3 trial, which are all randomizing patients to therapeutic guided dosing or traditional dosing in some way or another with more heavily powered outcomes for clinical cure. But until we have the results of these, all of the data that we do have simply says that therapeutic drug monitoring allows us to reach our targets, but they all include ICU all comers. They don't necessarily identify those specific populations of interest that we may think have pharmacokinetic alterations. So if you're in the ICU, if you're in the floor, and you think that one of your patients maybe does have one of these pharmacokinetic alterations, either due to a substantial new AKI, augmented renal clearance, maybe they have cystic fibrosis, or if you think they're at particularly high risk of a poor outcome, like a organism with a high MIC, and a beta-lactam is really all you have, then therapeutic drug monitoring may be a patient-specific decision that you make. So some of the ways you can go about this, it's good to make sure that you draw a steady-state trough sample, and this would probably be good, good to get about 24 to 48 hours after your dose, understanding that if you're getting it at Mayo Clinic, it's going to be some turnaround. So this is going to be a discussion with your team in terms of whether or not this is actually feasible for your patient you're likely going to get the total level for most beta-lactams, and you're going to have to extrapolate based on protein binding data. And it'd be good to target at least 100% over the MIC and ideally four times the MIC to really maximize your chance of effectiveness. And if you don't have that MIC yet, just use the uh, susceptible MIC breakpoints for your particular organization. So let's pause and reflect on some of this. Let's say that our patient, her urine speciates Acinetobacter baumannii, Cefepime's MIC for the organism is 4 milligrams per liter, and she starts to decline. So the treatment team changes her to a continuous infusion and wants to check a level after 24 hours. What would be your goal in this patient? And great, so I have some answers rolling in. I'm happy to see that people are really trying to overshoot for this patient. Because while the MIC is 4, that's really kind of a minimum bar for this critically ill patient who we've identified has a pharmacokinetic alteration. So I just want to highlight that this was a patient-specific decision to really use an optimal dosing strategy for this severe infection, and we're really gonna try to hit that organism pretty hard and try to maximize the chance of actually curing that infection. So the next thing that therapeutic drug monitoring may have a role in is toxicity. Now, not all adverse drug reactions are created equal, and we know that beta-lactams have a wide number of toxicities, although generally they're quite well tolerated, but things like hypersensitivity that my colleague Dr. Vollmer presented on a few weeks ago, it's not something we're gonna be talking about during the rest of this presentation. We're going to be talking about the dose-related and dose and time-related toxicities, particularly neuro and nephrotoxicity, which, while uncommon, can be particularly severe in our patients who are receiving high doses of beta-lactams who are already critically ill. So first, we'll talk about neurotoxicity. So beta-lactams have actually been long known to be neurotoxic. Since their discovery, penicillin's discovery in the 1940s, both lumbar injection and intracortical injection to animals like monkeys and rats has consistently been shown to have pretty substantial ictogenic activity. As you can see here, you don't have to be a neurologist to understand that the EEG of this mouse before the injection of penicillin was, say, normal. And then after an injection directly into the brain of penicillin, there's substantial change in activity, which could be described as epileptic activity. From a pathophysiology standpoint, this is because beta-lactams actually have an antagonistic binding site on the GABA-A channel. So they inhibit the passage of chloride through GABA channels, which can promote seizure-like activity. So beta-lactams can have a wide spectrum of neurotoxic effects, most commonly described as things like non-convulsive status epilepticus, 
myoclonus or cerebral spasm, but can also have things like psychosis and hyperactivity and just general EEG abnormalities and changes in mental status. These can be difficult to differentiate from things like psychosis or uh, delirium, excuse me, or other kind of neurologic toxicities, but it's frequently something that provider teams will reach for if their patient has a neurologic abnormality, especially with these high-risk agents like imipenem and cefepime, where cefepime-induced neurotoxicities have frequently discussed potential adverse reaction on rounds. Now, all beta-lactams have the potential risk of causing neurotoxicity, but there do appear to be these higher-risk agents who have more of an affinity for that GABA receptor compared to agents like ceftriaxone or piperacillin. Although I do want to underscore it still can happen with any beta-lactam. And similar to effectiveness, need to appropriately dose is also true for toxicity. Some of the early studies or reports of cefepime neurotoxicity included patients with significantly altered renal function being given massive doses of beta-lactam. For instance, this was a case series of a handful of patients who developed seizures on cefepime after a few days, and they measured the creatinine at the time of the seizure, as well as the trough if it was available for that patient. And you can see for this 16-year-old, who was given nine doses of cefepime a day, had a creatinine of 10.6 milligrams per deciliter, and a cefepime trough was 134 milligrams per liter. So if you think about our standard breakpoint being four milligrams per liter, this is quite a bit overshooting that. So this is where therapeutic drug monitoring on an intermittent patient-per-patient -patient basis may be able to pick out some of these differences. Additionally, in these very high doses, we also should remember that CSF penetration increases with higher peaks, meningeal inflammation, as well as uremic competition. So especially in these patients with renal dysfunction, with increased BUN, the uh, BUN will actually inhibit the export of beta-lactams from the brain. So you're going to have higher rates uh, or levels of beta-lactams in the brain as well. But to kind of get a little bit more granular in terms of the role of therapeutic drug monitoring and other agents as well, this was a retrospective cohort of ICU patients who received therapeutic drug monitoring, particularly for piperacillin and meropenem. They also looked at flucloxacillin that's not available in the U.S., so I did not include that in this slide. And they looked at the trough level of these two agents in patients who developed declining GCS, abnormal EEG, or symptoms of neurotoxicity that were unexplained by other causes. And for both piperacillin and meropenem, there is a clear level relationship for patients with supertherapeutic levels far above what you would consider kind of your standard MIC target or more likely to develop that toxicity. And to underscore that pathophysiology in terms of its activity at the GABA channel, interestingly, patients who were receiving benzodiazepines alongside their beta-lactams were less likely to develop that toxicity overall, although the confidence interval is quite wide, so it's not necessarily a very strong effect. So the real practical role of monitoring here is the fact that patients who have very, very high levels are much more likely to develop toxicity, and patients with low to normal levels are much light, less likely. So this is, again, a retrospective analysis of 70 poor patients on cefepime who received therapeutic drug monitoring. And they identified that a cefepime trough over 38, almost 10 times your standard MIC, 100% of those patients had neurotoxicity versus 0% who had a level less than 7.7. .7. So in that patient who you may consider to have neurotoxicity, this might not be a bad idea to just kind of confirm or deny your suspicions. The next toxicity I'm going to talk about briefly is nephrotoxicity. So this is a little bit more difficult to parse out because high levels can either cause or be caused by de decreased clearance. But this was that same study looking at neurotoxicity in a retrospective cohort 
And they defined uh, AKI as meeting any of the AKI on strat, uh, staging criteria. And they again identified that for both piperacillin and meropenem, patients who uh, had nephrotoxicity or an AKI had higher levels of beta-lactam. Not quite as strong as an association as neurotoxicity, but again underscores that increased exposure of very high levels may predispose our patients to toxicity and may have be a potential role for therapeutic drug monitoring. To kind of expand on this, it's not just extended exposure, it's definitely some of those higher troughs that we want to worry about. As this study, which looked at the incidence of AKI versus extended infusion, where patients are maintained at a kind of steady level over a long period of time, versus intermittent infusion of cefepime, uh, meropenem, and piperacillin tazobactam, did not observe a difference in the rate of AKI. However, piperacillin itself was actually increasing, had an increased risk of AKI due to its kind of penicillin activity. So to kind of think about some of this, let's say that our patient with that acinetobacter UTI was clinically improving, but suddenly became somewhat altered and suffered a seizure after three days of her continuous cefepime. A level was checked, and it's only six milligrams per deciliter. Uh, what would be your best action to take? I realize that should be six milligrams per liter, that's six milligrams per deciliter, but it's split in hairs. So would you decrease the dose to a lower target below the MIC? Would you increase the dose? Is it not high enough? Would you switch to another agent? or would you want to investigate other causes of seizures? Great, so I agree with everyone who's responded to the poll. So uh, checking a level here is a great way to try to figure out whether or not cefepime should really be high on that diagnostic differential. So given the fact that her level was low, and we're saying that's six milligrams per deciliter, um, that's a good indication that cefepime is not the driving factor of that neurotoxicity, and something else is probably going on. Certainly switching to piperacillin tazobactam is not a bad idea. It does seem to have a lower incidence of neurotoxicity, so definitely not wrong. But with that level, you can feel fairly assured that you probably want to dig around for something else that may be reversible for that seizure. But kind of in conclusion, if you want a somewhat of a potential flow sheet, I think that the, with the current literature that's available, checking beta-lactam levels on every single patient in the ICU is probably not feasible just yet because we don't really know that there's a clear difference in all patients. But it's reasonable with the discussion of your team if you identify patients with substantial pharmacokinetic alterations, such as AKIs, ARCs, obesity, and a combination of some other pharmacokinetic abnormality or ECMO. First, you definitely want to make sure that you're choosing adequate initial dosing. Now, for some patients, this may be a continuous or extended infusion, especially if you have your high MIC, or maybe calculating a dose based on one of the population pharmacokinetic applications. And if you feel like that's not really doing enough, it's definitely probably worth doing therapeutic drug monitoring if that patient's decompensating or if it's a high MIC or, uh, organism. And that would include checking a trough at a steady state level or checking level if you're concerned about toxicity, and then adjusting the dose as needed, just as we would with, say, vancomycin or aminoglycosides. Beta-lactams are nice in terms of they have linear kinetics, so you can adjust the dose in your kind of preferred method, and generally you'll be able to reach that target. So in conclusion, patients with critical illness have profound changes in pharmacokinetics, especially in terms of distribution and clearance. Their uh, beta-lactam therapeutic drug monitoring may have a place in select patients, but blanket monitoring of all patients like we do with vancomycin just isn't supported yet, although there's trials in the works. The targets that you should use are dynamic and patient-specific and should be targeted at both the drug and the organism. And it has a definitely a, de a delineative role if you have somebody who you're particularly concerned about beta-lactam-induced dose-related toxicity. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds.
Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.